Okay, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 9. We're actually going to get into the text. More than just the implications of the text. This year, the elders are working through a book called The Reformed Pastor, written by Puritan Richard Baxter. Baxter uh, lived in England from 1615 to 1691. He lived during the heart of what is called the Puritan movement. The Puritans were a group of people who, in reaction to uh, the Roman Catholic Church, decided that the right thing to do was to submit every area of their life and every aspect of worship and preaching to the word of God. Pretty novel, huh? Um, we could, we are very Puritan-like, uh, if you didn't know that. Uh, Puritan's kind of a bad word today, but anyways, he was uh, one of the Puritans, one of the people who was trying to say, okay, let's just do what the Bible says. And so uh, he was seeking a pure religion according to the Bible. And Richard Baxter was probably one of the greatest uh, counselors and disciplers of all time. He wrote this huge tome called the Christian Directory, which pretty much addresses every single counseling issue you could possibly think of. Uh, there are times when, you know, people come in and, you know, I want to know about something. I don't know. And I, it's in there somewhere. Um, he's got this thing is huge and it's in fine print. Well, this was unique because up until that time, uh, there was a real distinction, a real separation between the clergy, the Roman Catholic priests and bishops and, um, you know, cardinals and the pope and the people. But at this time, the Puritans were learning that it was important to be involved in people's lives. And Baxter was the champion. As a matter of fact, uh, he entered into the town of Kidderminster, England, and it was just a, just a debauched place full of vice and wickedness. And he came in there and started preaching, started doing uh, discipleship. He and a couple assistants visited 800 of their congregation a year, at least once, often twice a year, talking to them personally, giving them biblical counseling, giving them biblical instruction. And by the time he left that place, uh, the whole town was transformed. Someone said that even, uh, uh, I think, 50 or 100 years afterwards, you could walk up and down the streets and hear people singing psalms and hymns in almost every household. He just totally transformed the place. And what is amazing is he did this all during a time of great unrest and persecution and plagues and and just all sorts of trials in his life. But when you read his works, something becomes very obvious. Though he was light years ahead of the time, in the area of shepherding, he didn't really understand personal discipleship. He was coming out of the times when the priests and bishops were exalted and everybody kind of appealed uh, to them because they were seen as the representatives of God. 
The Roman Catholic Church had basically borrowed the Old Testament uh, priestly office and transported it into the New Testament. In the Old Testament, when you wanted to offer sacrifice or approach God, you had to go through a priest. He then would be your mediator between um, yourself and God. And so they brought that into the church. And so the Pope and cardinals and bishops and priests were seen as these higher elevated people that you had to go to. They were the ones who did the ministry while the church sat by and observed them do the ministry. While Baxter made huge strides in the training and equipping of his people and practicing one-on-one discipleship himself, he and many other Puritans erroneously hung to the notion that the preacher was the minister. The minister. And again, while Baxter and other Puritans have done much for Christianity and sound doctrine and holy living, their concept of preachers was that they were the minister. And this was nothing more than just a subtle carryover from Roman Catholicism, a slight improvement, but a carryover nonetheless. The whole idea that there are kind of super Christians in the church There are popes and cardinals and bishops and the ministers. The Roman Catholics wanted people to understand that the priest did the ministry. And they needed that person. And though the Puritans returned to biblical preaching and sound doctrine and diligent evangelism and shepherding, they still passed on the misnomer that the guy in the pulpit is the minister. And I think even today, if somebody were to come up to you and say, hey, um, who's the minister at your church? You would say, Jack Hughes. I'm sure most of you would say that. When you should say, everyone. Everyone is the minister. We are all called to do ministry in the local church, not just Jack Hughes. Uh, Help me out. I mean, come on. I like you, but I can't do that much. I'm not that good. And true, I am a minister, but false, I am not the minister. All of us who know and love Jesus Christ are ministers. We all have the Holy Spirit. We all have spiritual gifts. We are all called to engage in ministry, which makes us all ministers. We are all priests. We don't need a priest because we have Jesus as our priest. We all have access to God through faith in Christ. We don't need to Observe somebody do the ministry because we are to do the ministry. So this false thinking, of course, causes some to think that I should be doing their ministry. And that's not the case. After all, they think to themselves, you know, I'm not a minister. I didn't go to seminary. I don't know the Bible well enough, so I'll let the preacher do the ministry. Someone gets sick, sick in the hospital, and the first thought is, I need to call the minister. 
You are the minister. You go to the hospital and you visit the person. Sure, call the office. That's fine. May, you know, I like to go to visit people in the hospital when I can. But listen, you need to do it. You don't need a seminary training to go visit somebody in the hospital and offer them encouragement. You can do that. Hi, can I pray for you? Sure. How you doing? Let me read you a scripture. That's easy. You need to call me to do your ministry. There's no verse in the Bible that says, if you're a pastor, shepherd, overseer of a church, that only you should go do this. That is the ministry of the church. There's no more efficacy, no more spiritual power, no more blessing to be had from me ministering or visiting somebody in the hospital or you doing it. We're equal. But you know what? You tell people that, and I know some of you right now are probably thinking to yourself, I don't know. I sure like it when the minister comes rather than just that person. See, and it just, it reveals our false thinking. That's wrong. I'm not the minister. I don't have any more spiritual zap than anybody else. And so we need to make sure that we get this thinking straight in our mind. A lot of people have this idea that, well, you know, Jack, you're, you're paid by the church to do the ministry. And so you do this. I mean, I got a job. Well, listen. You are to minister in your job, through your job, doing your job. I don't care what you do. You are a minister all the time. The question is, are you ministering or not? Whether you're a teacher or the butcher or the baker or the candlestick maker, it doesn't matter. You are to be ministering, sharing the gospel, encouraging people, using your gifts. The primary reason that I am freed up is... The scripture says you need to free up those and pay those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So I sit in my office all week long and study and preach to preach and teach. Now, granted, um, I do other things besides that. But that is why I am freed up to do that task because it takes so much time and effort. And if I'm doing your ministry, I can't do my ministry. And so that's why the whole church needs to realize we're all a bunch of ministers here. We're all gifted to do ministry. We're empowered to do ministry. We can do ministry. We should do ministry. So let's do ministry. I'm not paid to do your ministry, to fill your spot, to do your evangelism or your visitation or your encouragement or your exhortation or your note writing. I am not the minister. We are the ministers. Peter speaking to the entire church in 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9 says, you are a holy priesthood. In verse 9 he says, you are a royal priesthood. We're all priests. We can all boldly approach the throne of grace. We can all have access into the holy of holies through the blood of Christ who is our high priest. You don't need some person to go through. I'm not, you know, like your spiritual access point to God. I'm just a guy who has certain guests and I'm been called and freed up to study all the time so I can preach and teach. That's all. I'm not the guy who does your ministry. Everybody has to do their own ministry in the church because we're all ministers. 
Now, when you hear someone in the hospital, think to yourself, I am the minister. I should minister to that person. So don't, don't, don't be thinking to yourself, you know, I need to call somebody to minister to that person. It's okay if you call the office and please do, but you think about you doing it. And don't think to yourself, well, you know, I know this person who, who needs to know the Lord. I will bring them to the church so that they can hear the gospel. No, you tell them the gospel, then bring them to church. You know, do your ministry. And granted, there are times when, uh, you know, you maybe want to see somebody discipled and you not, might not be able to for some reason. And yeah, you can bring them to church. You can, uh, you know, introduce them to people. There's a Sunday school class or whatever to get them involved in training. But, but you know, if you can do it, you do it. So, okay, that's just a little background because we're getting into a text here where we're going to be talking about discipleship. I want to be very clear. So if you think I'm kind of moving slow, it's because I'm moving slow. And I want to make sure we all understand this because a lot of people know that about the term discipleship and they know they need to be doing it. And maybe they even feel convicted that they should be doing it, but they aren't quite sure how to go about it. How do we go about doing discipleship? How, how does that work? Well, we are in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. As most of you know, we have spent one week looking at this text from the angle of the purpose of signs and wonders. We have spent two weeks focusing on the fact that every believer is by definition a disciple, is gifted by the Holy Spirit, and is called to engage in ministry. Now, the reason we've spent two weeks uh, on the implications of what we read in verse 1 is because before you're entrusted with greater ministry responsibilities, you have to first begin to engage in ministry at the lowest level. You have to be faithful with those little things. You have to start before you can be given greater ministry tax. So we spent a couple weeks on that. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the text and start working through some of the principles that we can learn from Jesus as he prepares the 12 to send them out for the first time on their own in sets of two to do ministry. So follow along in your Bibles. I read Luke 9, 1 through 11. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter... Stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard all of that heard of all that was happening and he was greatly perplexed because it was said that by some that John had risen from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and others that one of the prophets of old had arisen again and Herod said I myself had John beheaded but who is this man about whom I hear such things and he kept trying to see him and when the apostles returned they gave an account to him of all that they had done Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him and welcoming them. He began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. 
Now, I've identified eight principles of discipleship from Jesus' ministry. They're practical. They're timeless. All of us can apply these things to our own discipleship ministries so that this body of believers can function like God wants it to function. Remember, the disciples have been following Jesus already for quite some time. And the first principle we come to is train disciples through instruction and example. They have already watched Jesus. They've seen his example. They've already heard him. They've seen him teach. They've heard him preach. They've had private discussions. They've watched him live in the face of persecution, in the face of blessing with sinners, with religious opposition. They've seen him do miracles. So they've already had tons of instruction and example given to them even before this text. But look at verses 2 through 5. Where it says, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. This is talking about what he's going to do. But notice what he does in verse 3. He said to them, now he's giving them instruction. Take nothing for your journey, neither staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not even have two tunics apiece. For whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So he tells them to preach the kingdom of God and to perform healing and to take nothing with them but to trust in God. And he tells them to prepare to receive persecution and rejection all that we're going to get into later but the point you need to grasp is this he prepared them he prepared them jesus did everything he could to train and equip his disciples to succeed in ministry when i was in college hoping to get married to this honey that i met And uh, we did get married eventually. Uh, There was uh, a lot of unemployment and uh, I thought, I got to get a job. I can't get married if I don't even have a job. Um, And it's not that I hadn't been working, but I was going to school full time. And and so I thought, you know, I need to get a job. So I thought, what am I going to do? Well, I'd grown up doing construction and stuff. And so I thought, you know, I'm just going to start and go to some of the construction supply places and see if I can get a job in that field. So I went to uh, an electrical plumbing and supply house. It was just place that sold electrical parts and plumbing parts. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go there. And so I went in the first place, filled out a resume, handed it in. And the, guy, the manager hired me on the spot because he liked it. That was a commercial fisherman. Before that. And uh, so I was really qualified. He didn't want to know. The whole time he didn't want to know what I knew about the, you know his business. He just wanted to know about my fishing escapades. So we got along real well in that respect. But this was a bad store manager. He was lazy. He made no effort to help his employees at all. He didn't try to teach people anything that he knew. Instead, he saw all the employees of the company as kind of knaves that were there to serve him and make his life easy. And my first day of work, this is how he trained me. He showed me the time clock, gave me a time card and said, punch in and go for it. (laughs) That was it. He says, you know, if you have any questions, ask the other guys. I I couldn't believe it. I didn't know anything. I didn't know where anything was on the floor. I didn't know anything was in the warehouse. I didn't know any procedure. I didn't know how to fill out a sales ticket. I didn't know where the sales tickets were. 
I didn't know anything. And I'm telling you, those first several weeks were very stressy. But I survived by the grace of God. But not long after that, I came to work one morning, and that store manager and the assistant manager and all their favorite employees had been fired by the owner of the company. And a new manager was in place, and he was a great manager. And when someone new was hired, they were given thorough training instruction, taken around the whole facilities. Things were explained to them. Then they were assigned a mentor that they had to follow around for like almost a whole week just to learn the process. Then they would begin to do things and their mentor would follow behind them until they could go on their own. No, duh. Well, often in the church, we set people up for failure because we don't train and equip them to do what we ask them to do. You know, we have some ministry task and we need them to do it. And so we say, hey, you want to do this? Uh, okay. And then the guy has to spend several stressy weeks trying to figure out what he's doing. Hey, you, you want to teach this uh, Bible study? The guy doesn't have any training in studying the Bible. We don't know what his doctrine is. He's never been trained in doctrine. He's never been trained in, in uh, teaching. We just say, ah, here you go. Here's a task which is one of the most serious and important tasks of the whole church. A task which incurs stricter judgment. Go for it. You know, this is a Herculean responsibility and we just say, hey, you want to do this? And just, you know, you're warm and you're breathing, go for it. And then when we ask them to do that and they fail, when they fail, we often think to ourselves, well, too bad. That guy just doesn't cut it. He just doesn't have what it takes. Well, you know who doesn't have what it takes and who doesn't cut it is the person who failed them in not discipling them. That is the person who didn't cut it. I was talking to Marv Biddick this week, and by the way, he all says hi. He misses everybody. Um, he's just getting too old to make the commute. I was talking to him, and, and I was preparing this section of my sermon, and he calls, and we're chatting, and he was telling me that he was, he says, yeah, he says, you know, I, I'd only been a Christian seven months, and they asked me to teach the junior hires. And I, I like, oh. I said, Really? So I so said, what training did they give you? He says, they didn't give me any. He says, I was a brand new believer. I said, really? He goes, yeah. And I taught him for 15 years. <laughs> well, God bless Marv Biddick. <laughs> and you know, he told me he's still in contact with some of those junior hires that sat in his class over 50 years ago. And they're still doing ministry. You know, when you assign a baby in the Lord to teach junior hires, what does that reveal about your knowledge of the word of God, your respect of the word of God, your care for God's sheep, and the value of junior hires? That's not good. 
What does it teach you about the importance of sound doctrine and accurately handling the word of truth? Granted, if you're teaching young children, you know, you can be new in the Lord and read a story and say, this is the story and here's what it is. But I'm telling you, when you become a teacher, you need to know how to read the Bible, study the Bible, prepare a lesson, and to teach it. This is not some, this is the task that incurs stricter judgment. This is the, let not many of you become teachers, James says. And we take some guy who doesn't know what he's doing, say, hey, you want to teach? And we set him up to fail because of lack of training and insufficient discipleship. Jesus thoroughly equipped the 12 before sending them out on their own for the first time. He set them up for success, not failure. And all of us need to be like Jesus in this area. Don't just tell someone, get out there and figure it out. You hold their hand all along the, the, the way. You know, one of the things I love to do is I like to train other guys how to preach. I mean, that is just candy for me. And the people I really like to train are lay people in the church. Now, there's some guy who's grown up in the church. He's got good doctrine. He's been a faithful teacher and servant for a long time. And he goes, you know, I think I might like to try preaching sometime. Okay. All right. I like that. I think that's good. You know? I mean, we may have here another Charles Spurgeon just sitting in the pew. We need to find that out. And so what happened is, is I say, okay, well, I'll help you through the process. Uh, go pick a passage and we'll talk about it. And they do. And then I take, send them away. I say, well, go outline it and then come back and we'll talk about what you came up with. And then they do, and we talk about it. And I say, okay, go do word studies and background and context and come back and we'll talk about it. And they do, and we do. I say, okay, what I want you to do now is read as many commentaries as you can, put all the pertinent information in there you can, and then uh, I want you to try working on uh, application. Make sure it's got application. They go away, they come back, look at it, we talk about it, work through it. And I say, okay, now I want you to illustrate it, and I want you to synthesize it. I want you to make your application clear and everything run smoothly and They go and synthesize and try and make it logical and in order. And then they come back and we talk about it. And granted, you know, part of the sermon's me. But a lot of it's them. And now they have a sermon manuscript to work from. But that's only half of it. They're like a guy with a gun. A loaded gun. But they don't know how to shoot. And you know, you can have a lot of teaching experience, but it's a lot different than preaching. But you know, you can sit out there and think, well, it doesn't look all that hard. You make it look easy. I mean, you know, I know what kind of sermons I like. I'll just be like that. You know, I like to listen to John MacArthur. I'll preach like him. Good. Go for it. I wish I could preach like him. You know, you just have, you have this idea in your mind. Well, then you say, okay, it's time. And so you say, okay. Just focus on this. Don't be too nervous. Don't speak too fast. Go slow. You know, you try and give them not too many things and give them, you know, task overload. And then all of a sudden you thrust them up there and they do their best and they're thinking to themselves, you know, I think I did pretty good. And then you say, okay, I want you to listen to your sermon. 
And then we'll get together. And by the time they come and meet with you, they're suicidal. (laughs) They're like, I can't believe I did that. And all those people stood there and suffered through that. (laughs) And you know what's cool is, is a lot lot of times, their heart's right. And even though they aren't all smooth and polished, people are blessed. And they either find out, you know, I like that and I know I can do better. And then the next time they improve by a thousand percent and the next time a thousand, I mean, they just, at the beginning, they just ramp up and really do well. Other ones go, you know, preaching isn't my calling. (laughs) I never want to do that again. You know, make me 10th string uh, on the emergency chart. And you know what? That's what you got to do. You got to go through that process. That's what it means to train a disciple. You give them, you you hold their hand and you do this in any ministry. You read the bulletin and all of a sudden you see, oh yeah, technical sound lighting ministry needs help. And so you think to yourself, you know, I, I know how to use a computer and my, you know, car stereo. I could probably help out. And so you wander on up there and see John Barnfather sitting there amongst all that, you know, stuff. Blinking lights and gadgets. And you think to yourself, yeah, John, I was thinking, you know, maybe I could get involved in the technical ministries. And John says, great, have a seat. And he says, okay, this is all you got to do. All you got to do is make sure everything's hooked up right. All the mics are in the right places. He says, make sure the sound levels are right. Make sure everything's mixed correctly. Keep the volume right. Get the PowerPoint right. Make sure the lights go off and on at the right time. I want to make sure it's recorded onto the computer, onto a CD, and onto DAT, and make sure everything runs smoothly. I'm going to Sunday school. (laughs) Now that's pretty nightmare. That is a nightmare situation. And you know that if that happened, you would just be like, oh, oh. Well, I want you to know, you don't even incur a stricter judgment for failing in sound, but you do for teaching. There are a lot of things in the church that we can't just dabble in. We can't just throw people into them. Some people go, well, you know, I want to teach. Well, you know, have you ever taken any classes on how to study the Bible? Well, no. Have you taken any classes on doctrine? No. But I want to be up front. I want to be in front of people. Well, then you just stay back. Because you, this is, this is like, you know, the top of the food chain type of stuff. And we want to make sure that when you get up there, you're equipped. We'll train you, but you know, don't think you just get to hatch out and then jump off the cliff. You know, there's some process that goes along with that. No, what would happen is if you wanted to do the tactical ministry, John would say, okay, great. You want to start right now? It's like, sure. Okay. Well, just have a, get an extra chair, sit down here. I'll start showing you some of the stuff and this is the mixer and this is what this does. He starts showing you pieces. And he started talking to you about, do you understand this? Do you find out where your level of understanding is? After a while, a couple of weeks of sitting there, you'd get to know more and more about all the pieces. He'd start saying, yeah, turn that on, turn that on, turn that on, plug that in, switch this over here, come back here, take that in, put it here, put it over here. All of a sudden you start learning, okay, we're going to put the batteries in the little, you know, ear widgets. And, and so you start learning to do some of the things. He's probably telling you about things that have happened. What happens when all of a sudden, see, that's a problem. <laughs> Jack gets up there and right in the middle of the sermon, the most important. 
And see, then you're all wondering, what happened? And you know, what do you do in a situation like that? And so he begins to prepare you. After a while, after he gives you enough instruction, you start feeling comfortable. Then he sits you in the chair and then he watches you do it. Okay, do this, do this, do this. And you're doing it. Then... After you get comfortable doing that and he has to tell you less and less, then pretty soon he sits there, but he sits, you know, 10 feet away and uh, keeps running over. Don't forget this. Turn up the volume. Turn down the volume. Getting reverb. You know, you got RF over here. Fix it. Um, You know, he's telling you stuff like that. And then eventually, after a while, you get trained and then, you know, he cuts you off. And that is a complicated ministry. Granted, that is a complex ministry. Sorry. But, you know, even though you have, have uh, ministries like that, which are complex, most ministries aren't. And you don't have to usually go to that degree to teach somebody how to fold bulletins or whatever. Usually, training might be a lot less. But, you know, some ministries you think are not very complicated actually take quite a bit of instruction. Quite a bit of instruction, you know, we do baptisms up here and, you know, I I have to tell people, listen, you know, when the screen comes down and it's summer, if you open up both doors on both sides, it creates suction and it sucks the screen in there. (laughs) One door has to be closed at all time. Otherwise you get this suction thing and it's a problem. Okay. And you know, you don't want to learn that from experience. You want to learn that from wisdom. You know, so that when, you know, all of a sudden there's a big gust of wind, you know, all of a sudden the screen doesn't collapse and end up in the baptistry. You see, things like that. So when you do a ministry, whatever it is, no matter how simple, you get your disciple, you begin to train them step by step, you give them wisdom, and some, you can do it maybe in a day. You could teach somebody how to do it in a day. Like, you know, you wanted to hand out bulletins as people came in. This is how you do it. Stand here, smile, and say, hi, welcome. Okay, you got it? Yeah, let me watch you. All right, you're doing good. See ya. (laughs) I'm going to have some coffee. Yeah, you know, so whatever ministry it is, though, you try and set, set things up, set that person up so that they succeed and they don't fail. And so all of us need to be doing that. The second thing we learn from Jesus in the text, if you look there, look in the latter half of verse 1. Luke, telling us about Jesus after gathering his disciples together, says, And he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Now, it would be nice to have this power, and it would be nice, you know, for to be able to give this power. Um, but we can. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But we do have power And we do have the authority given to us to train people and to give them opportunities to serve. That is our power and authority to train disciples, make disciples, then train them, teaching them to observe all Jesus commanded. So we have that freedom. For instance, the elders have given me authority over the preaching schedule. And so... Um, they tell me what they want in general, and I work out all the details. And when the elders approve, let's say, for a guest speaker, I have to give that person a spot. The elders give me permission to rotate one of the other pastors into the pulpit about once every six weeks. Why is that? Well, I want that to happen. I want that to happen because I want everybody else who is trained and gifted to preach to be able to preach so that they can become the best preachers they can be. 
I want you to know, some people ask me, well, Jack, you know, I mean, you were here, you were sitting in the front seat, you know, pew, why, why weren't you preaching? Because the other person needs an opportunity to preach. I want you to know, I'm not sitting there because I don't like preaching. I love preaching. I, I would preach way more than I do if I could study that much. But I just can't fit any more study time. You know, I can't go up there unless I'm boned up. But yeah, there's, there's, there's times when you are in the ministry and you have an opportunity to give somebody a chance to do ministry or not. You know, I could, I could cling to this pulpit and say, no one's preaching here but me. <laughs> and every time I took a vacation, I'd leave on Monday and get back by Friday. So I could get in the pulpit. And if I couldn't preach and I was six, we're canceling church. We're having prayer time. But no one's preaching but me. See, some pastors have that idea. They have this these white knuckle. I'm the only one who can do this. I'm the only qualified person. And, you know, I can rationalize that. You know, hey, you know, I've been called. That's what they hired me for. I went to seminary for that. That's my specialty. It's my area of giftedness. And so don't touch it. And a lot of people are like that in their ministry. Listen, this is my ministry. So don't touch it. Don't touch it. But you know, what God wants you to do is he wants you to multiply yourself in your ministry. He wants you to say, you come here, feel this nice pulpit. (laughs) Try this now. Yeah. See, He wants me to train other people up in my area of ministry. And he wants you to train people up in your area of ministry. Because that's how the church grows. That's how people mature in Christ. And so you may not have the ability to impart the gift of signs and wonders to people. But the principle we can take away here is whatever abilities, whatever authorities, whatever privileges you have that you can pass on, you need to do that at times so that other people can grow in maturity. But I want you to know there's something that has to die in order to do that. You have to die to your pride. Because, you know, there's some people who don't want anybody else preaching because they don't want other people to like the other person who preaches. Or I don't want this person doing my ministry because maybe they'll be a little better than me. And so I'm going to guard my... That's pride. That's pride. You have to stay humble, especially when the person you're training shows greater promise and giftedness than you. And in that case, you probably should step aside and just admit, listen, compared to this person, I am dust. Sometimes other people must increase and you must decrease. Not because you don't like your ministry, not even because you're not good at your ministry. You may be good, But you're not anything like this person who is excellent. And you have to remember, why are you here? You're here to serve the Lord. You're here to bless the saints. You're here to get people equipped, worshiping and evangelizing in the greatest possible way that you possibly can. And sometimes that means saying, pal... I know you haven't been here very long, 
but I'm putting you into first string. I'm taking second string and being your backup guy. Let's just say you have three lawnmowers at home. One is very old. It smokes. The wheels wobble. The engine's worn out. You have to kind of go really slow in the grass. And it just doesn't work for it. It takes forever to start. It takes three arms. It's a three-arm lawnmower. The two you wear out, and then it finally starts in the third one. You have another second lawnmower that's not quite as old, but it doesn't have a catcher. And the blade's dull. And it only runs well when it's over a hundred degrees. <laughs> Your third lawnmower is new. It's slick. Self-propelled. Sharp blade. No dust catcher. It's nice. Starts just, you barely just, blah, 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 just starts right up. It is, it's great. Now, which one are you going to use to mow your lawn? The new one. You got the broken down car. You got the brand new one. Which one are you going to drive? The new one. Okay, good. Somebody, somebody's awake. The new one. The new one. You're following me. You know what? You may find someone new in your ministry. You know, maybe they come in because they moved here from out of town or whatever. They've been serving in their church. They're committed. They're faithful. They're godly and they're gifted and they're experienced way more than you are. And sometimes instead of saying, well, you know, I know I smoke and I know my wheels wobble. I know I'm hard to start, but I want my ministry. You say, hey. Pal, you get in here. I'll back you up. What can I do to help you succeed? This is about giving glory to God. It's not about holding on to your own turf. You know, this isn't a government agency where it's all about seniority. And it's all about maintaining your position and maintaining power. This is about giving glory to God and making sure God is glorified in the maximum possible way and people are blessed in the maximum possible way. So I want you to know, sometimes when you begin to empower people and give people opportunity, be ready to humble yourself. I mean, I'm at seminary sometimes. I'm training guys to preach and some of those guys start out preaching better than I can. They are good. I just think, man, these guys are killer good. They come up to me, oh, Pastor Hughes, uh, uh, did I do okay? I just want to cry, you know. <laughs> you were great, man. You were so great. Don't get swelled up about it, man. You're awesome. And they are. They're awesome. That is a good thing. That's not a bad thing. And so when you're in your ministry, train others. Give them an opportunity, empower them to serve. Try and make sure they succeed in whatever ways you can. Be humble.
Third, send your disciples out teaching them to trust in God. Look at verses 3 and 4. And he sent them out and he said, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor a bag nor bread nor money. Do not even have two tunics apiece and whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. What is Jesus teaching them? Trust God to provide for you when you minister. That's what he's teaching them. Now, not everyone makes their living from the gospel ministry. I don't think we should make this a universal command that, listen, whenever you're ministering, never bring anything. Okay? Um, this is a specific command to the apostles at a specific time and a specific reason for a specific purpose. But there is a principle here, and the principle is this. You need to trust God when you're serving. Everybody needs to learn to trust God when they're serving. Turn to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. Paul describes his ministry to the believers at Rome. I want you to notice how he does this. A lot of times when you start ministering, it's kind of confusing because when you're ministering, you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, people talk about ministry and they say things like, well, you know, you need to trust in God or it's not you, but the Lord. And you're thinking, Really? How does that work? It seems bipolar. You know, you, you just seem, you think, well, is it me or is it Jesus? You ever, you ever wonder about that? Oh, I didn't do that. Good sermon, Jack. Well, it wasn't me. I could have sworn that was you up there. <laughs> I want you to look at Romans 15, verse 18. Notice what Paul says here. For I will not presume to speak of anything except... What Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed in the power of signs and wonders and the power of the spirit so that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now notice Paul describes what he accomplished as Christ has accomplished through me and in the power of the spirit. And yet at the end of verse 19, he says, I have fully preached the gospel. Well, who was it? Was it God? Was it Christ? Was it the Holy Spirit? Or was it Paul? The answer? Yes. (laughs) Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the great text on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul just mentions his ministry here in verse 10. And notice what he says in 1 Corinthians verse 15, verse 10. But the grace of, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet, not I, but the grace of God with me. Now does that sound confusing? In Colossians 1.29. Paul says to the Colossians. For this purpose. I also labor. Striving. According to his power. Which mightily works within me. You know as a preacher. There are certain things in the word of God. That I have to do. I have to do. Because God commands me to do. Those things. I have to reprove, rebuke, exhort, admonish, instruct, refute. Um, 
to name a few. I have to command the scriptures. Multiple times says, command these things. People, a lot of times when they see me, hear me teach, they say, man, you're really laid back when you teach. But when you preach, man, you are serious. You're in your face. Well, I have to. A lot of people, though, don't know those commands. And when they hear me preach and I'm using the second person and they, I'm in their face, they think you're a legalist. You are a legalist. You're always talking about works and obeying and doing, but you're not talking about the grace of God. And I realize that people who say things like this, they don't understand what the scriptures command me to do. They don't understand grace either. Because the grace of God is the ability to do what God wants you to do. Grace of God isn't off the hook from obedience. The grace of God has been given so that we obey. The only way we can obey is by grace. And so some, in an attempt to massage their screaming conscience because they don't want to part from their sin, blame me that I'm a legalist. Listen, a legalist is somebody who's telling you you can be saved by works. Or that you should do works without trusting God. I've never said that. Yet the word of God is clear. When we go about obeying and ministering to others, it must be by his grace. When you drive somewhere in your car, is it the engine that gets you there? Is it the transmission? Is it the gasoline? Is it the oil? Or is it you? You see, that question is faulty. Is an erroneous question because it implies that only one of those things gets you somewhere. Your car needs all of those things. And you, or it can't function. Just try driving somewhere sometime without an engine. (laughs) Without a transmission. Without gasoline, without, you know, oil in your car. You're not going anywhere. All those things need to happen. Simultaneously. It's not just one component. As a believer... You are saved. You have the Holy Spirit. You have spiritual gifts. You have the grace you need already. You have the command of God. You are told to trust God and do it. All of those things all happen by God's grace. None of those things are apart from God's grace. The grace of God instructs us to live holy lives and to do good. When the Bible commands you to do something... That command itself is the grace of God. Because this whole book is a gift of God's grace. Every piece of it. And so what you need to understand is, is that when you minister, you have to teach your disciples to trust God while they minister. Not in themselves, not in their intellect, not in their physical strength. But God, what that means is, is you say, okay, we're going to go do this ministry. Let's pray. Let's ask God to help us here. Make sure that when you go out, whether it's teaching, whether it's bulletin folding, you do all for the glory of God. You ask God to help you, ask him to do. You rely upon him. You trust in him. That's what it means. 
And we have to learn how to do this because if you don't do it that way, then you're trusting in the flesh. You go to, you know, chapter 17 of Jeremiah, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, for he will be like a tree in the desert, in the land of salt without inhabitant, and will not see when prosperity comes. And that guy is in the wasteland. But the person who thrives is not the person who just lets go and lets God. It's the person who trusts in God and then labors trusting God. In first, second Peter chapter one, verse three, we read seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Anything you need at all is all given to you by grace. The same thing in second Timothy three seventeen, we, when he talks about the word of God, he says, we are equipped for every good work. Everyone, everyone, second Corinthians three, five and six, not that we are adequate in ourselves as considering anything is coming to us from uh, ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate and servants of the new covenant. Sometimes you just feel like you're just so inadequate. And you know what you are apart from Christ, you know, like Howard Hendricks says, get your finger, put it in a glass of water and pull it out. The dent that's left is how significant you are. You know, you're not adequate apart from Christ. But if you know Christ and you're trusting in Christ, you're adequate. Even if you've been a believer for seven months and they say, will you teach junior hires? You see, it's not your responsibility to do what's right for someone else. So even when God, by his providence, puts you in a situation and you know you're not adequate, you do the best you can. And that's adequate enough for God. His grace is sufficient. I mean, when I'm preparing my sermons, I just feel so bad sometimes. I am so convicted. I think to myself, God, why don't you just strike me dead and then raise up somebody else? Where's Aaron? And yet, here I am. You know, I have this perfect word I'm teaching. I'm not perfect. I'm never perfect. I always preach to you and tell you to do stuff. Not because I'm already arrived. I have not. Because that's what God tells me to do. He makes me adequate. He makes you adequate. So when you send people out, you say, trust God and he will be your adequacy. And he always is. He always is. It may not be flashy. It may not be profound according to the word, but God's going to use it. He's going to use it for his glory. Second Corinthians nine, eight says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency and everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. All, all, all. Did you hear it? That's what God has for you. He is your sufficiency. So when you leave here today, what do you need to remember? Train your disciples to do ministry. Give your disciples opportunities to serve. Empower them to do ministry and succeed. And then as you send your disciples out, teach them to trust in God. To provide for them as they in and of themselves are not adequate. But Christ and his grace is. Paul in his prayer to the Ephesians says this in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever. And ever. 
Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. What a great text. What great principles. May each person here put them into practice. And Father, may we as a church model Jesus' discipleship ministry tactics. May we train people. May we help them succeed. May we empower them, give them opportunities to serve. And Father, as we send them out, may we encourage them to trust in you for your grace is sufficient. Father, we pray, pray for success in these endeavors for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.